What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 50 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. To mark the 50th episode, we wanted to do something special, so I'm beyond stoked that we got the chance to catch up with Phil, aka Soil Growing Solventless. He talks to us about his current projects, the evolution of Rosin, his experiences in the rec market, and much more, so definitely stay tuned for it. Shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests with the best ceiling carb caps in the game. You can grab them on Instagram at Zach Brown Glass or on his website, ZachBrownGlass.com. Shout out to every person that makes up our community on Patreon. We're incredibly thankful to each of you as we would not be able to keep making episodes without you. If you aren't part of the community and you like to support the podcast, get early access to releases, additional interviews, and more, you can do so at patreon.com backslash the Hashishin. That's the Hashish I-N-N in our Instagram bio at the Hashishin or on our website, thehashishin.com. Also, a shout out to another big reason that we can keep the podcast rolling, our awesome sponsors, including our partners at Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on their Instagram at rosinevolution100, where you'll find everything that you need if you wash hash or you press rosin from full mesh wash bags to customized size rosin bags. Rosin Evolution has got you covered with their unmatched products and customer service. Rosin Evolution is your one-stop shop for anything rosin. And to save an additional 5% while supporting the podcast, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710, all together saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. Shout out to one of our newest sponsors, one of the true legacy glass brands, Toro, who you can visit on their site, toroglassgallery.com or on Instagram at toro underscore glass. They've been pioneering functional glass art since the early 2000s. They stay at the forefront of innovation where their passion for cannabis and its resin has inspired them to create new ways for us all to consume it while maintaining their extremely high standards of quality. So no matter where you are in the world, whether you're looking for quartz or high-end glass art that focuses on high-end function and design, visit Toro at toroglassgallery.com or on their Instagram at toro underscore glass. Shout out to our homies Hashhead Outfitters who you can visit on Instagram at Hashhead Outfitters or on their website HashheadOutfitters.com where they focus on small batch, high grade clothing for hash lovers that gets you feeling extra cozy with that dab. I just grabbed another set myself because I find myself wearing my hasher sweatpants more than ever. They're a perfect blend of quality and comfort. You can feel good in that the 100% cotton source responsibly, and you can look great in the new sick colorways they've been dropping. So if you're like me and you love to be comfortable while you're chilling, check out our new friends who cater to hash lovers lifestyles, hash hit outfitters, again on Instagram, at hash hit outfitters, on their website, hashheadoutfitters.com. Again, a shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests with my favorite carb cap in the game. Check out his V2 series at ZachBrownGlass.com or on Instagram at ZachBrownGlass. I appreciate you listening and I hope that you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 50 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Sharang Mamir. Today, I could not be more excited to be here with Phil, aka Soil Growing Solventless. You can follow him on Instagram 
at soil growing solventless underscore. What's up, dude? How are you? Hey, what's up, Shrag? I'm stoked to be here, man. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, of course, dude. I'm stoked to have you. Like I told you, I've been looking forward to this for a while. And especially for episode 50, I thought it would be really cool to have you on. So I appreciate you taking the time, dude. Yeah, dude. Sorry I couldn't make it sooner. It's all good, dude. We were joking about this. I feel like we need to almost start off the interview talking about the fact that we got together unbelievably almost four years ago now in person down in LA. And it was a really funny instance. It was one of the most memorable instances for me, honestly, with the podcast. Uh, we were hanging out in your lab and you had a phone call and you're like, hey, dude, like anyone else, I wouldn't take this, but it's my wife. And I'm like, yeah, of course, go for it. And then you come back in the lab and I'll never forget, you had this like funny look on your face. And you're like, bro, we're about to have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like go for it man and so it's been uh it's been funny that you know it's taken us four years to to reconvene but i thought that was a great story yeah while we're here my my girl's four years old now so <laughs> yeah dude it's unbelievable it's uh it's crazy but you know since we touched upon it let's talk about where we met that time back in la we met at a lab that you were running at the time can you tell us a little bit about that lab and what you had going on then? Yeah, so basically that was just a spot we got out in LA. It was like off Esperanza, like fucking a, a walking distance from Jungle Boys and stuff. So it was cool. We had partnered up with Canna King. So it's like a, an old friend and stuff. He used to crush it with like the Clementine. So that was like one of the things we, we loved getting from him. Same with a couple of my other buddies too. They would run it. It was a killer strain. I don't know, dude. It was like, Heavy citrus turfs, what a funk, dude. So it was good. And that was probably like the best Clementine I, I ever had. No, that spot was cool, but it was all like, it was manufacturing, solventless. We had distribution there and uh, things like that. So, you know, the problem was we didn't have cultivation there. So at that spot, we were kind of like figuring out who we we're going to source with and things like that. And, you know, my main focus was like trying to keep it all in-house, you know, like, build a team and do it all together and, and build consistency in that way. And it was cool and all because we were partnered up with Canna Kings and they crushed it. But we were waiting for them to get set up on their side. So you know, in the meantime, we were doing some processing for people, dialing the lab. It was cool because I learned a lot at that spot. You know, I built out, I, did a, I learned a lot of plumbing, electricity and like all that shit, dude. I did a lot of my own stuff. Just like, you know, YouTube University and like guys coming in and being like, oh yeah, it's 12 grand. We'll do the plumbing. I'm like, fuck, dude. I priced out every part and everything. I did it for like three grand. And I learned a lot. You know, I learned how to freaking solder the copper and like, you know, using pecs and like it rather than having them do it, it's like, nah, I learned what I needed for like all my 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 clean water and ice and like, you know, so I decided like, oh, I'm going with pecs because it's like for potable water and the fittings are non-lead brass fittings. You know, so all those like little things I was able to like dig in and dial in on the lab, what pumps and like all these new things and shit, you know, going from like, cause before that I was small dude, like working out of my garage and shit over the years and small room and just dedicated out of the garage, but super tiny. And then like, you know, we got this 2,500 square foot lab. So it's cool. We dropped the 20 by 20 washing or wash cold room and set that up with like, you know, the plastic machines and a bunch of stainless steel barrels from like Bubba's barrels that we set up. It was cool, dude. It was a really cool spot, but it ended up going sour with the partners and stuff. And that was a rec spot. So it's just like, 
is kind of like my my introduction into like the whole rec manufacturing side of things. It was new for me and everything, and it was going great, dude. It was cool, like working with other people and shit, and like starting to get it popping on like a bigger scale. It felt really cool, all the space and all the equipment we were able to get, and dialing in like my SOPs and the way we wanted things done. But like it just. I don't know what happened, dude. It went sour with some of our partners. I, I feel like greed was uh, the biggest role in it. A bunch of shady shit went on and we ended up getting like pushed out of our facility. Yeah, dude, it just shit went bad. It ended up panning out. You know, we got everything, but it just wasn't what we built in the 14 months that we fought for it. So new opportunities came about during that time. And now I'm out here in Adelanto. So I got a lab and partnered up with the facility over here. Been here for about three years building with them. And, you know, I like it. I like it because I feel like I've found some people that truly believe in me and they back me. They listen to me and they trust my words. So I don't know. I, I really like the people I'm working with. Have you found it difficult to find people to work with that you seem to be aligned with once things are actually in effect and you're working together? Does it seem to you that? Sometimes kind of people change along the way. It's tough to say because you know what, dude, like my whole history has always been on the traditional side. And like most people I've ever worked with, it's just always good vibes. Like everybody working for themselves, like making their own things, making their own living and a lot of love involved with the plant and stuff, you know, and, and, and all the way through. That's what I love about the traditional side. And that's why I'll never, ever leave that shit, dude. But like, you know, the whole rec scenes, it's it's tough. It's more business and like, more of the people that you deal with in this rec side are just, you got to put on face for, it, you know, and, uh, you know, that's why I feel like the people that I work with, my partners and stuff, it's different. It's, it's, it's nice because they actually, they listen to me. And, and you know, when I ask for something or, or I explain something that's, you know, important for, for brand integrity or, or maintaining quality control or, or, you know, whatever along that line, they don't push me to change it or try to go a cheaper route or to, uh, you know, to take a, a shortcut or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, no, nah, dude, I don't know. I do. I do feel like it's, it's tough. It's definitely tough finding good people out there on this side, but now they're there, but they're in the same boat as me. You know, they're trying to figure out a way to make it work and make shit pop off on, on, on this side, you know? And like for us, you know, we got a cool crew. We got, we got our own cultivation, and everything. And, you know, it's just like, feels like, feels like the old days, dude, like working with, you know, the growers and stuff, but like just in-house and like, you know, everybody, all the growers here, they're all, they go home and they, they grow on their own, they grow their own shit and, you know, they'll make their own hash or do the things that they like to learn and stuff. So there's a lot of culture here on the inside, but sometimes, you know, there's ways things have to be done. And for the most part, what I hate about it is like all the paperwork that takes the time out of like the amount of time that I could put towards the hash instead of getting this, doing something that I want to do and like, a week, it's like, God, oh, it's taking me two weeks because of all these other little steps I got to do. But it's cool. It's all good, dude. And like, I feel like you just got to be a little more reserved around people and you start to learn who's, who's similar and who's like you, you know, and like, who's doing this with love and who's doing this just to get a paycheck and like come out and like, oh, you hiring, and they get a job and they don't know shit about it. Don't care about it. They don't smoke. They don't enjoy it. Like there's no passion. There's no love. But, you know, I'm thankful of like where I'm at, there's a lot of it, dude. And, you know, like we all take lunch together. We sit here with bullshit. We chop it up about like, ah, what's going on over there? All these new cuts are coming in. Uh, you know, what some of the guys are popping and like what's going on. So 
it's cool. It's still cool. There's still a lot of fucking great people. There's still culture involved. They're all around. But, uh, you know, it's, you know, I understand why anybody crushing it on the traditional side would be hesitant to move to this side because it's like, it's a fucking, it's hard to trust, dude. It's hard to trust. And it's like, when you're doing so good somewhere else, why change? You know, and it's, it's, I feel like the, the, out here, it's just over, over regulated and overtaxed. So it's, I get it. So although it's complicated and you've mentioned that there's this lack of love for it within the rec scene, you also mentioned that you think long-term it's kind of the most viable way to do this. Well, I mean, as far as long-term and being viable, yeah, dude, I, I got four girls, you know, I got a big family and I love them. I would never want anything to happen to them or myself to where it took me from that life. Cause that life is the most important life to me, you know? Second to that is hash, dude. Like to me, hash isn't work. It gives me an ability to make a living and doing something I love. So I got my family and then I got my work, but I love work, you know? So it's like, it's, it's tough, but like with the whole rec scene, you know, yeah, it is complicated and stuff, but I feel like what's lacking in most of the rec is, is the passion and the love. And then also the experience, the time and energy that was put into doing whatever it is, whatever craft it is you're doing that got you to that point where it's like you, you've perfected something in a way or you've made it to a point where it's like it's really good and appealing and it's just something you're proud of. I feel like majority of the wreck is there's just so many shiny objects out there and the people that can get these buildings and these licenses and stuff, you know, it's, it's big money. They don't know a thing about it. So they look to... You know, they meet people and and they talk and they try to get involved. And, you know, it's like they reach for a shiny object. And I think it's easy to sound good and make a really good story to get yourself in somewhere. But truly, like a lot of that skill and stuff is out there doing its own thing. They're out there doing their own thing and they're not trying to work for someone and build somebody else up. So it's tough, dude. But I feel like like you got to find the right people and be connected in a way or just get fucking lucky. And somehow you got that guy that's like, you know, he's going to, he's going to drive you there. He's, he's got the love and the passion for this shit. Listen to him because like, he's, he's telling you, he's telling you what, what everybody else is wanting because he wants the same fucking thing they do. I feel like that's why the industry lacks. And it's like, you know, if you had all these, if it was, if it was much easier to get in, they didn't make it so hard. How much of the traditional side, we've all done good, dude, enough to where it's like, damn, we should, we should all have our own business type of thing. This, is a, this should be a mom and pop type thing. We should all have our own fucking labs and our own grows on the legal side. Not so hard, not so overtaxed and hard to make a living because then the industry would be fucking bomb. You would have all kinds of good shit out there. There'd be more abundant and, and people and a lot more love involved. But no, nah, instead, you got you to gotta go do it in, in the old school way. You got to go find your old friends and go, go, you know, hit the fucking, the traditional side. And it's like, that's where you find the good stuff. You know, and it's, it's, I'm not saying it's not out here on the rack because we're building, we're building it, you know, and I know a bunch of people coming crossing over and, you know, they're the quality control. And I feel like quality control, how are you quality control? Who are you? Like, what do you do? Where do you come from? Like, what gives you, what, what gives you the ability to like, say, this is the shit, like, this is proper. Like, Ooh, we got to adjust here. Or, uh, this one's off a little bit. Like, ah, I don't like that turf. Who's, what makes you that guy? And like, that's what these places don't have because they're all out there doing it on their own because it's too fucking hard to get out here by yourself or with your boys as a team, you know? So 
I don't blame anybody, dude. Like, I feel like maybe at some point things will change, but Cali is kind of shit right now, dude. And, and you can you see it too because they're talking about like seventy one percent of licenses are going to drop off. They're not they're not renewing, which is fucking sad, dude. And that's just like the the biggest example of like you know, there's no love. Those are all just people coming up with shiny objects trying to sell to a consumer, but. People are wising up and there's lack of education in this industry. I feel like the reason why we crushed it on the traditional side before it was Prop 64, when we were Prop 215 and shit was what it was, we educated each other. You know, it's like, oh, you know, we gave people dabs and we told them about it. And then we, we told them the crosses on the strain and we, we taught them a little bit of how we make the hash. And we explained to them why this is solventless and why this is solvent and what hydrocarbons are and what different processes of things like, oh, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's like we taught people these things, you know, like now it's just like, oh, indica sativa, high THC. There's not really anything doing and, and like, we'll go out to these stores and we talk with these bud tenders. There's very little knowledge and, and you do come across some bud tenders that know their shit, but it's like, you know, I think it's up to the brands to be out there educating these guys and teaching them and, and moving. If we want to really do this, we have to educate what's right and what's now, not like, not old, old knowledge, like new shit, you know, like terpenes and like fucking the entourage effect and like just the way we smoke and, and do things, you know, because this is the culture and this is what people are trying to get into. So I, that's how I feel. Do you feel like the traditional market will always thrive? 100% to the end of time, just like it does with anything else. But, you know, it's like, it's too real. It's too true. It's like, it's the quality is all there. All this culture and all this like, all the fires coming out of there, dude, because these guys live and breathe this shit. They wake up and go to their greenhouses or go in their gardens or go into their labs and they start working and until they go to bed or until they're done for the day. And then they go sit and relax and enjoy all the stuff that they made and, and critique themselves and they figure out how to be better. You know, so like that'll always thrive because there's always going to be people who recognize real who are going to want that same fucking thing. And what's interesting about it is something that we were talking about earlier ourselves is how you didn't bring this word up earlier, but these kind of choice makers, if you want to call them right within the quote unquote traditional scene where things become popularized, where things become almost like validated. And then that starts like trickling out and eventually gets out into the rec market, into the popular market, while something else is kind of brewing within the traditional market. Yeah. And you know, a hundred percent, cause those guys are part of the culture just as much as the guy who makes the hash and the guy who grows. Cause they're the guys that sit there and they smoke it. You know, they're the ones smoking it and like blazing it and telling people about it. They roll it up all sick or, or out of their heady pieces or however they do, they have a way of doing things. And it's, it's it, uh, inspiring to other people, you know, like, you know, when I, when I see someone roll up something dope or when, when I see someone like do some new shit with their hash and shit, I'm not like hating on it. I'm inspired by it. So when you have these other guys out there, like we, we work so hard to make something to share with people. And then you have these guys who they have that ability to like, um, look at this shit. This shit's dope. Dude, boom, came at like showing how it's smoking or how it's tasting and talking about it and letting the world know. Cause people want to be a part of that. They want to find the good stuff too. And it's like, you know, those guys know the good stuff and they're connected and, and they recognize the guys who are put doing, putting in work and putting out good stuff. And the guys that are, that are putting in work and, and making the fire, you know, they, they know who to, to who to get it to, you know? So I think it's, uh, those are, those are your wave makers. They make waves too. You know, they, they help. 
Yeah, I can see it for sure. It's an interesting phenomenon how it all kind of, it's like this holistic thing that works together to some degree. Yeah, those are the smokers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, so changing the pace a little. I feel like you basically revolutionized the world with a hair straightener. <laughs> Could you have ever imagined things as they've unfolded? Nah, dude, honestly, no. I mean, uh, it's funny because I remember like just throughout time, like growing up every time, like with, with weed, I've been smoking since I was 11, dude. So it's stupid young how I started. And it was like a weekends thing, but it forever. It's always like, oh, what's next? Like, this is the coolest fucking thing I've fucking seen. Like, how did they, how, how could this be? You know, like from like growing up as a kid to hash, to hash oil, to it's like isolating THC and separating terpenes and figuring out how to separate fats or whatever it is, dude, pressing fucking rosin on a hair straightener. And like, I just remember in that before that even happened, like, you know, I was starting to make hash just so stoked to get to that level. And it's like, how could we progress? How could we be above the, how could we do any more than this? This is the goat. I mean, I'm not saying hash isn't the goat. And it's just crazy. Cause like, yeah, dude, I, I would never would have imagined it being like this, and especially just from pressing like a bud and stuff like that. I guess before that, I would have never believed it. But once it happened, I don't know, because it was just evolving so damn fast, dude. And it never stopped. It never stopped. I feel like that's a big part of why it's so infatuating and so fun. Because there, there was so much, such an abundance of knowledge being shared. And that was one of my things, too, in the beginning was like sharing is caring. Uh, knowledge is power. You know, it's like I was big on that. And I wanted, I wanted to share anything I knew. Because I feel like that would have helped it evolve faster and stuff, dude. Like, and it did. It did because you got so many great minds working at the same thing, trying different things, experimenting. And you know, some people keep things to themselves, which I don't blame them. We work hard. Why would we give away our hard work? But at the same time, I think it's all right sometimes. Dude. You, give, you give up some stuff and you share with people. You get it to the right people and... and we evolved together and we built now look what we now now look where we're at and look what we smoked, dude. Like I feel like what we smoked, like as far as oil then, hash was hash was always good. But as far as like oil, dude, what oil were you smoking on? Like BHO? There wasn't six I mean, it's hard to say. Like hash some six star hash was basically oil at the time. You know, that's to me when once I got to that point, it was like, dude, this is the greatest shit in the world. And then, uh, and I, I still love hash over rosin. I would have to say, yeah, dude, it's fucking crazy how fast it's evolved. Even to like the consistencies and like, oh man, dude, it's, it's, it's out of control, but I love it. Yeah, it's wild, man. I mean, like I said, that was part of the reason that, you know, I kind of wanted to celebrate you on this episode because uh, like I mentioned, I feel like you're a really big part of how the modern history of hash has kind of played out into Raws and, and, you know, that we sit here and we talk, we literally talked the whole first part of the interview about this becoming like an industry and like rosin is in everything. And it's like, the it seems to be like the most popular thing now. And it literally just started from like your curiosity. And then obviously this like idea that you had. And funny enough, I've been listening to some like Rick Rubin stuff lately. And there's this concept that, he has of like, you know, but we as people are like, we play our roles in this like universal thing. And it's like almost like the universe, that was the timing for it. And you were the vehicle for it. Because the thing is, like we've heard about, for example, Marcus talk about 
people messing around with hash earlier on, but rosin really was just like this kind of unknown thing, right? And you tell me what you think, but I feel like what you brought, and I've said this multiple times on the podcast to other people, is the fact that you brought a way that was like practical and semi-replicable where people could be like, all right, we can use this tool. We can do this instead of it being like a chance thing of like, oh, we made some rosin heating up hash or something. Yeah, no, dude, it's funny too is because I remember first like putting it on Instagram and then I went on like a snowboarding trip. It was like 2014, like December or maybe like January 2015. And my phone started blowing up and like my family's like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know. And like, oh yeah, people are liking my thing. And it just went crazy. From there, I was like, dude, I was so stoked about it. People were asking all these questions like, oh, I fucked up a quarter of weed, like help, help. So I, I did like a step-by-step, like boom, step one, step two. I remember looking back at that. I wish I had that video still, but I was pressing weed at like 400 degrees or some shit, dude. It was so hot. You're watching the smoke come off of it. But you know, it, it, to me, it's like at that time, it's it's all about just figuring it out and then dial it in later. But it was like, for me, it was just like, fuck, dude, oil's coming out. Like to me, it was like, that that was cool right there. Didn't even matter about terps or anything at that point. It was just like, whoa, coming out of the hash, coming out of the bud, like some fucking crazy shit. First time I ever did it, dude, it wasn't even a hair straightener. I took a chunk of hash. I put it in between like a piece of parchment. I crumbled up inside of it. And uh, I had the email on the table. So I would take the parchment and the hash and press it up on the email, but not on the coil because the coil was fucking hot. So on the actual, the nail with nothing <laughs> right. on it, just, yeah, I'd press it with my thumb, dude, and like pull it off. And there'd be like, you could see the slightest tiny bit of oil. So I'd scrape it and it'd take me like five minutes, dude. And I'd be able to get you a dab. But I, I remember having like my father-in-law and a couple friends over and they're like tripping on me. And then I'd pass them the dab, they'd hit it, and they're just like, no words. Like, just what the fuck, dude? Did you just do that? And it was like, it was crazy, dude. Once I ran out of my hash, then it went to the whole flower rosin thing. But yeah, bro, that those days are fucking fun, man. It was just so much like, ah. No, yeah, I bet, dude. I, I remember seeing you on that hash church where you have like the t-shirt press and like the the whole thing. But it's funny that you bring up the hash being first, because I feel like there's this impression that it was always like the buds first and then the hash, but you actually did the hash first and then moved on to the buds. Yeah. Yeah. I did the hash, but without a screen. And then that's when, uh, Jeff church, the cannabis reverend, he he like brought the screen on and shit. And it was just like, what the fuck? And you know, cause with me for the hash, I would press it. So it was pretty clean. There was not really much particulate in like the hash rosin that I was pressing without a screen because I would collect it off the side, dump the dry shit out. But that screen changed the game, dude, for the the hash rosin for sure. Yeah, funny. Another like kind of milestone that needed to be reached, right? It's like you figure it out. Oh, if you squeeze it. And then it's like, well, what if you filter the squeezing of this as well? <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's crazy, dude. Because like who started rosin was like, I think it was like Chadwick Bastardo. And he's like, he was doing it on like a double boiler and a fucking like a bowl or some technique and like catching the sticky shit to the side while the dry. So it's kind of a similar concept, but more of a hot plate and pressing the wet out and leaving the dry in the center. So I don't know enough about it, but like I was saying earlier, it sounded like that was more like by chance, right? Almost like you could do it, but it, it was really hard to like replicate doing that over and over versus having this tool and understanding like, all right, we need heat. 
we need pressure, we need to press. And like, it's a pretty simple concept, but at the same time, at the time was kind of revolutionary. Yeah, no, I, it was, it's crazy because yeah, I think it's just because of how simple it was. And it's like, dude, honestly, like that whole thing, I was really big into hash and really starting to, you know, get a lot of like appreciation from people and like, you know, a lot of people like loving the hash. So uh, I remember watching Nick because he was like, you know, when I first started getting into it, he was one of my inspirations. He was like a, a, someone I really looked up to in hash. And, you know, it was new and he was crushing it. Matt Rise, BC Bubble Man, even like Frenchie, I was really into because I was really into like all these old school hash makers slash like what's going on now. And like where I come from, dude, I used to blast, dude. I used to open blast and like making wax. So I was even before solventless and shit, I was always making like concentrates, but uh, I fucked up, you know, I had an accident and I promised my wife that I would never, never do that shit again. So caught wind of like ice wax on something, dude. And I'm like, boom, that hooked me right there. I'm like, ice wax, dude, fucking wax. They're making wax with ice, like ice water. So, you know, I remember getting my first set of bags. They were nicotine bags too. The essential, bag, yeah. the essential bag, dude. So, uh, yeah, but dude, I remember him. He would take the hair straightener and like the lower quality melts. He would uh, press them out like nice and thin to flag them up. So I would do that. And then one time I fucking I did it too hard. And I'm like, oh, I fucked it up. You can see all the shiny and the dry in the middle. I could have dabbed it right there, but I didn't fucking know. So I'm like, oh, I fucked it up. Folded it all up, repressed it. And I like to do that too. I would press it, fold it up, press it, fold it up. And on the third press it was like a good it would make something that didn't melt very good melt much better but yeah dude i pressed it too hard didn't fucking think anything about it till like probably three plus months down the road i had sold my dispensary the reserve hash that i had taken with me i'd start running out of so that's when i went to go try pressing out a flag fucking light bulb came off in the head dude. i'm like just had an idea and uh, actually, no, dude, I didn't go to press a flag. An idea just came off in the head. I wanted to. I didn't have a hair straightener anymore. And I went to grab my wife's hair curler. And that shit was not working. But uh, <laughs> that's when I did the email thing. I tried it on the email and boom. I was able to start getting some off of that. And then, you know, my wife seen the hair curler, blah, blah, blah. She brought me out a hair straightener and it just fucking, it took off from there. You mentioned smoking cannabis early from like 11 years old. And then you mentioned like being into concentrates pretty early. What was it that you liked about concentrates? Yeah, I think what I liked about hash was like, I think my first hash I got was like, I was probably like 13. And uh, one of my dealers, like the guy I would get the stuff from, like he always had the best shit, dude. And then he had made a batch of hash, which now looking back at it, it was probably made with like ISO or something like that, dude. Cause it was like some goopy green shit. And I don't know. I liked it, dude. It was good. It was just different. It, the high was stronger. We'd pack it on the bowls and the way it would melt into the bowl. Regardless of what it was made from or what part of the planet came from, it was tasty. And I, I, I smoked fire then too, because I was like picky with the chronic, dude. Like what it was and like, you know, I didn't want the fucking $50 fucking chronic. I wanted the fucking, I wanted to pay the extra fucking 10 and get like the bomb, you know? And like the hash was just good, dude. It would spice it up. And like, you know, I was always, Whenever we would roll up or use a grinder, like never rub the screen, always keep the keep super good and like sprinkle it on the bowls. And like, yeah, I just really liked it from them. And then like 2009, dude, I went to Amsterdam and like that was all I wanted to get. So I would buy weed, but my main thing was just 
hash. I would buy little bricks of hash from all these spots. It was like $12, dude. I was like in heaven. Like, what the fuck? I can get hash for $12 a gram. Dude, I stocked up on it. And I remember I brought back like, I think it was like 20 grams. It wasn't much, but I fucking brought it back home. And I was just like, dude, I think that's like where I fell in love with smoking hash, you know, because it was like a rare, a rare thing. And, and like getting the shit from Amsterdam, dude, was like, fuck, dude. Oh, man, such a night and day difference from like, and I come from like Bullhead City, Arizona, dude, like Laughlin Needles, like the armpit of California. So that shit was like gold bringing back, dude. You know, it was like nice temple ball, fucking quality hash, dude. Like I loved it, dude. So I think that's where my infatuation with hash started. And then, you know, from 2009 and 2011, got a dispensary, me and my my family member. And uh, we opened up a dispensary with uh, another individual that had a, a actual like Prop 215 license. So we got that thriving again. That's when I started making like BHO and stuff. You know, I, I learned about blasting and all that, like open blasting and, you know, making my own fucking sketchy ass stuff to try to make shit. Like I remember my first time dude, looking back like, I'm, I'm so lucky I'm alive. Like the shit I did dude, blasting and then like, cooking it on a, a stove top, trying to burn out the butane, like the dumbest, what stupid people do, dude. I was stupid people at the time, you know? So, Well, uh, nobody knew better, honestly. I mean, but anybody should know lighter fluid in the flame is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so common sense went out the window when I, when you, when you, when, when I just became so fucking like locked in on the resin, you know what I mean? So, and it was cool, dude, because out here during those days, you had like uh, La Brea Collective was like a big Prop 215 spot. They had the hash bar and like LA Confidential. And like those were my spots, dude. So going over there and chopping it up with people and like bringing hash and showing it. And like it was like super fucking cool, dude. So I love those days. That's kind of where like the love for hash came. And, you know, even hash oil, regardless of it being made with butane, it's like it's something I don't do anymore. I, I rarely, rarely partake. and. I loved it, dude. Like I, I fucking love. I love. I loved it then, and I love where it, where it brought me because I feel like if it wasn't for like that shitty hash and that that BHO and shit, like I probably wouldn't be so into making hash the way I do. Like I don't just like to smoke it, but I just I love the whole part of stripping that resin off of that plant. At the end of the day, like that's what I love about it, dude. When you rub your hands on that plant and like that resin sticks to your fingers and those terps man, that's what I want. I want to just put that all into one and like capture that. And the fact that we can do that in a way with just like water and ice, heat and pressure, then nothing out of the, nothing crazy. Like, it's just like, it's fucking crazy, bro. And I love it. It just makes me love it even more. Yeah. You definitely seem to have that vibe. Like you're really about it, which is cool. And again, something we talked about, I think that's one of the things that helps get people through the rough parts, right? Is like, if you really, really love it, then you'll stick with it because it just comes natural to you. Definitely. So kind of reflecting on some of the stuff that we've talked about and seeing rosin turn into what it has, not only here in the US, but really starting to be worldwide. What are your feelings about it coming from this shared information that you really had from curiosity? Is there any type of mixed feelings? No, dude, I think the only feelings I have about it is I'm stoked because it's like, it's cool that, that like I was able to inspire people in a way that it turned into something so big and like that my mindset was on something that I, that I loved and I thought was so great that 
and it ended up being something like really cool, dude. Like to where like everybody wants to be a part of it in a way or like learn how to do something or get some type of information to like grow or make cash or, or, uh, you know, press like, you know, everyone wants to kind of to get to like a point where they can, uh, make it, you know, I feel like it's, it's, it definitely took over BHO, you know, as far as oil, it, it, it pushed it out and nah, dude, I don't know. Like I don't have any mix. So I'm stoked about it. I'm, I'm stoked about the way it's evolved and, and the way people are picking up like these techniques and creating new techniques and like coming up with new consistencies. You know, you got people really digging into the fresh press and developing it to where it's just like, uh, like really good fresh press, dude, like no bubbles, whatever, a uh, low temp press stuff. You know, you got guys who are doing like liquid nitrogen extraction and all these things are these making these solventless hash to be pressed. And not everyone's making it for rosin, but for the most part, you get your gold water hash and then the rest is for rosin. But it's it's just, I love it, dude. I think it's great. And, and, and I think it's given a lot of people, especially myself, it's given us a lot of opportunities to be able to share what we love with, with everybody, dude, and, and make a living of it and like uh, continue to do it and like, you know, enjoy it. And then not just like, have to do it and like try to make ends meet but like do it because you want to do it dude and like no nah, I'm stoked about it I'm stoked the world's picked it up the way they have because you know it, it's benefited me I've, I'm inspired I'm inspired by so many and like I've learned so much through others you know and I feel like just if I was like some type where I was like oh I developed this technique and patented it and did some weird shit like whatever and I'd probably be making some like fucking flower rosin store or some shit or like some some whatever <laughs> who knows where i'd be but it's like you know you know watching people thrive and like uh push and like get inspired and like uh be passionate about things like that shit pushes me too dude so no i love it man i feel like it's it's been nothing but good for the community and i think they feel the same yeah i agree man i appreciate that sentiment and that point of view because like i said I, I feel like your contribution was definitely an important one. And so, yeah, it just pushes things forward. And like you said, seeing everybody being inspired by everyone else, everyone else working towards their own things, but like, you know, doing it as a, as a community or almost as a whole as well is really neat to see. Yeah. Well, cool. Do you think uh, you're down for a smoke break? Yeah. Fuck yeah. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Shout out to our homies and partners, Rosin Evolution, the best backs in the game, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. We wouldn't have reached the 50th episode milestone without their support, and for that, we're forever grateful. We've had an awesome relationship with Rosin Evolution because they're good peeps who not only bring great, high-grade products to the community in their rosin bags and full mesh wash bags, but also the people behind the products are just as great, which is why their customer service is wonderful. So if you wash hash or you press rosin, you like peace of mind and supporting a quality grassroots company, then visit Rosin Evolution at rosinevolution.com. And if you want to save an additional 5% while supporting the podcast, then use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710. Altogether saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So let's talk about the evolution of pressing rosin and its technology. You were one of the people who helped originate the Sasquatch press. What were some of the things that you guys were looking at when first developing that? So like that was, yeah, that was kind of a crazy evolution. So that I had a t-shirt press and I would 
you know, that's really what I was pressing on. People were coming out with some things along the lines of that. I was also making emails like for friends and stuff and selling them. So I already knew like a PID controllers, thermocouplers, solid state relays, and like just all the some a lot some of the components for you know rosin press. And I remember going out to San Jose and I was talking with he goes by Buddha uh, with the Happy Buddha Press. So I remember talking with Buddha and stuff. You know, I really wanted to get something out there like you know a press like designed for me type of thing. So I remember talking with him. You know, we had similar ideas, but he was really local, small time, and didn't really want to expand, you know, so super cool dude. So I remember talking with my cousin and stuff and like breaking down a press to him, like, dude, we can do this. It's an H-frame press. We just need blocks, thermocouplers, and heater cartridges, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, dude. So we uh, kind of just like, we talked about that. And like my cousin went off and kind of like made his own little thing. So he brought it, presented it to me, and that's when we partnered up. You know, and so like ideas I had, they were some of my cousins came from like uh, welding and metal fabrication and stuff like that. And some of them were growers. So it was like between all of us, we came together and we, uh, we built like 30 presses, but it was like a single heated plate. So we came out with like that press and uh, it was like pneumatic. And it also, you can like hand crank it. Actually, no, I don't even think it was pneumatic. I think it was just like hand crank, just like a hand crank press. So, you know, I remember using it and then we would just like nitpick it and like figure out what we needed to do to it next you know like the center of the block would get too hot and so we would put two heat cartridges in them and then we we added another set of heater cartridges to the top block you know that they were at it all day so a lot of that fabrication came from them and stuff but you know there's a lot of our ideas combined and stuff like that but they they really put it down with like the fabricating and whatnot but it was cool dude it turned it turned from like you know my cousin's little garage out in Anza to uh got a spot in Marietta, like a big ass warehouse and shit. And it was like it was fun times, dude. It was a really cool thing. But that just kind of just took a turn uh and I got out of it. I'm not a part of Sasquatch. I didn't I I kind of got away from that and just like let them they did their thing and we kind of just parted ways. Unfortunately it didn't end on good terms because like uh I don't know man. It's just I guess uh it just wasn't meant to be, you know. So still love the guys. I hope they're doing well and stuff, but you know, we, it's just kind of unfortunate where, where it turned to, but no, dude, it's, uh, it's all good, dude. It's cool. It's cool. You know, we, we fabricated something, but yeah, it's just crazy how it's evolved now. Like even from that, like from that press, which was like pretty cool at its time, man, there's so many presses that like just that have evolved so much, dude. Be from like saving recipes to like you know setting PSI and like exactly how you want to do preheating and like just all all the different the the fucking styles of pressing and like the drip tech and whatnot, dude. And like it's it's cool, dude. I fucking I think it's really cool that literally pressing rosin evolved the oil in such a way and also the equipment in like such a way to where it's like fuck, dude. It's like having a we got badass equipment now instead of like modded up makeshift MacGyver stuff, dude. And it's like really cool and efficient. And like, I appreciate it. I love it, dude. I think uh, I really respect like the whole, the guys that really ran with like the fabricating of all this equipment and stuff. It's uh, really made my life easier and man, dude, it's, I'm stoked. Do you feel like it was a really important part for you to be part of that team that started developing that as a hash maker? Did you learn a lot about, for example, heat and how it affected pressing this resin? Like, did it help you develop 
your side or your profession while helping develop the idea of this press? I mean, I think in a way it did, but I feel like any person trying to perfect a craft will figure out how to do it with what we got, you know? And whether that's like the, the cheesiest makeshift tools like the available, like we'll learn how to get good at something, you know, with what we have. So, you know, I think, I, I don't think I really developed my techniques and stuff, like my ways through the equipment, but more of learn how to use whatever equipment and observe what I'm trying to get in the resin. So like, you know, if I'm looking for a certain indication like that, this is quality, you know, and this is what I'm looking for, or I'm pressing too hot or I'm pressing too long, pressing too much pressure. In any press, we would be able to figure out and kind of dial in our process in a way where it's like, man, I like this hash. I like what I'm making. I'm, I'm happy with it. But I think now the equipment just allows us to do so in such an easy way where it's like, you know, oh, I fucking, I dialed this strain in and now we just took it down again. And like, you know, I, I can check my parameters and like all the variables that I used before and I can be like, okay, well, I'm going to apply it, you know, watch for any, any changes. And like, you know, it kind of just sets you in a path that was similar to what you did before. If it's something where you're like, oh, how did I get this? Well, it's like, it, it's, I feel like it's good on like the science level. Like, you know, you get to record your information and then like apply it again with like saving the recipes and stuff like that. Yeah, I think I, I would say, yeah, it's helped. It's, it's helped develop the technique overall over the years. And as a side note, you know, in regards to these recipes, one of the things you always hear about cannabis is how it can fluctuate, even the same genetics. So in the case that you brought up, for example, of dialing in a strain and then it comes down the next time, is part of your looking at it and still kind of making these minute changes based on the fact that even if it's the same cultivar, it can change from even cycle to cycle or even one part of the room to the other, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's great because then you get a, you know, you, you can save these recipes. You see what you did before. You know, you take down the same strain a couple of months later uh, and you have that. It's like, oh, I already did this one. You try it out and you can see if it's different. And then, you know, you can wonder why it's different or you get to see if you did something consistent or if it's like, you know, maybe it's, it came out of that same room that it was grown in the last time. And that's like your best room or whatever. And it's like, you know, it came out very similar, but you know, I think it's more of no matter what you're pressing, whether it's the same strain that you've been running for a while, intuition is always important and observing what's going on is super important. Like you should never just rely on a recipe. I think that's why we have that quality control, you know, and then that is the quality control is you making sure your shit is coming out right and not just relying on a computer to set a re to, to run a recipe that you've done before and assuming that it's going to give you the same results. You know, I think it's up to us as the hash maker to pay attention to what's happening and, and to get that final result. So yeah, you know, it's, it's still up to us, but I think it's cool because it shows you some, some sort of consistency in your work and what you do from cultivation to extraction or to the press, as well as like, you know, it's kind of like sets you in the area you were. You know, whether it's like time or temp or, or whatever it is, whatever those parameters are, you know, you're kind of like, you're in the area, you already, you already set yourself up to like, not have to like dial it in so much, you know, but uh, no, I think it's, it's even recipe or not, dude, I think it's the hash maker needs to, to maintain that like intuition with whatever it is he's pressing every time. Will that element always exist, do you believe, in that there always will need to be a maker 
who is overseeing this and it won't become completely automated. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I believe so. Cause I think like there's just too much inconsistency with, with the strain and like, and how it, from like start to finish and like, you know, the terpenes and the way things react, just so many variables from like temperature, humidity, time, pressure, and everything else in between to where, you know, I'm, I'm sure machines will be able, at some point, fully automation will be able to do it. But I think that's what's going to be the difference between like craft connoisseur, like micro batch type shit compared to super fucking automated, big scale production stuff coming out, you know, because I feel like with those machines, usually the people that develop those aren't the guys that make it and they they don't understand exactly what you're looking for. But they see like, oh, okay, I'm getting the base for the most part. It's doing what people want to do, what the masses want it to do. You know, and I feel like that's a lot of, but look at a lot of equipment, dude. You got guys out there trying to make like trim machines that are fast tracking trimming so you can have pounds that look just like they were trimmed by people. That'll never fucking happen. It's still not going to happen. And, but you know what? When, when you get a lot of people who buy them and like, this is suffice, this is great. It's doing the job. We're saving so much money. At the end of the day, that machine, those, all those machines are going to fuck you over because you gave up that person who is the eye for quality and who monitored it all the way through and made sure it's this, this, or that. And it just, it starts, the knowledge disappears. You're leaving it all to this like machine. And then, you know, people are like, oh, well, we don't need you anymore because we have this. And then it's like, things become mediocre. And I think, yeah, I think we'll always need people. We'll always need hash makers because otherwise it's just going to be mediocre shit. Do you think in a weird way that's still almost like a necessary thing? Does there need to be solventless for quote-unquote the masses? I don't think we need a machine to make it to scale it up that much. We could still do it with people. And then there's jobs. Why are we trying to pinch every penny into a machine? People can make it, dude. We can scale things up. We can still use equipment. And like, I'm not saying to, to you know, not have equipment just strictly, you know, do things caveman style, but um, there's plenty of things we can do to make things efficient, you know? And like, I think setting up a lab in a way or setting up the way you set up your processing, you know, and like one guy can do a small batch, but one guy can also do a big batch by himself. And then if you give him the right equipment, he could potentially do double or triple that himself, you know? So I think you just give the right equipment that helps us, you know, and it's like when you have to stop and fill up water, you have to stop and do this, just make sure all those things are dialed in and let's make things efficient like that instead of like, figuring out a way to just like drop it in and then boom, you got your end result at the end type of deal. Like washing machines, I'm not against washing machines. Hand washing is king, but uh, you know, washing machines allows for scalability, but I think it's super important. You have somebody there, dude. You throw it in a machine, just let the machine do its thing. You're going to get fucking mediocre hash, you know, but like you can like nowadays with these machines, dude, you can fucking, even back in the day with the plastic machines, dude, you get a dimmer, you dim down the voltage on it to where that thing's not ripping your shit up. And like, you could do something decent with it still, dude. But like nowadays, dude, you know, I'll set that fucking thing on like hand wash and I'll, I'll hand wash at the top. So it's like a machine assisted hand wash. But it's, if I didn't do anything and it was on that setting, I would pull nothing out of it. It'd be like no yield. I'm beating it up more with the hand wash than the machine is, but it's keeping my material moving. You know, when I'm washing like a big drum of material. So I don't know. They, it's got its pros and cons. I just, I think you'll always need hash makers. Again, a side note, but in this example that you just brought up about the hand washing 
it, it sounds like you're doing that almost just to keep your flow rate right between the material, the water, and the ice. It's like you're, you're hand assisting the machine to properly keep things going. It's more like the machine's assisting me during the hand wash. Because like, if I was to just let the machine do it, it would be like more gentle than a hand wash with like a very little yield. But that's how slow the machine is. But it's enough to keep like the bag spinning so I can move them around and, and like nothing's stacking on top of each other, settling down. You know, it's just, it's similar, but I, I don't know. I like it. And at the same time, you know, it's like it's in a machine now. I can kick it on, you know, after whatever spin that's with that material that we decide like, okay, this is where the cutoff is. Boom. Let it just do its thing there. This, we got the cream right here. And the rest goes to, you know, to whatever. So let's talk about parameters. When you first started pressing, I'm assuming you don't really know what temperatures. I think you mentioned 400 on some of them. How has that evolved for you? Where were you then and where are you now? I mean, then I didn't really know much about like terpenes or anything with like how resin. Or I mean, it was just, I guess in the beginning, it was just too new. It was more of like just infatuated the fact that you can squeeze oil out of the hash or the bud. And so from there, it was just letting my, uh, my interest play into that, you know, and just making stuff until I got to a point where I was like, okay, like I pressed some stuff and it came out better. So, okay, that's, it's gotta be the strain. Okay. Well, no, actually like you see, okay, you accidentally did this or it's like, oh, we tried turning the temp down or like, Sometimes it's just you do things so many times and then something changes and you realize, like, you know, I, I started messing with temps. You know, temp was like the biggest thing. So I started high, didn't know it was just on the email and then pressing on a hair straightener, like 400 plus, and then bringing temperatures down, you know. So, uh, and then I think that was like a big topic too in the community. So sharing knowledge and stuff with everybody, you got a lot of people sharing it back. And it was like, a, it was a big thing, like just, oh, boom. Pressing at 240, bringing down to 230, 220 was the number. And then, you know, things changed up. Now we're pressing at like 160 and below and, and, you know, depending on what we're doing. So, yeah, I think over the years, dude, it's just just trying new things and, and, and watching how the oil reacts. And like, I feel like when we were pressing hot, we were definitely pressing out a lot of the turps and like getting more stable, the fresh press, shattery, more consistency. Now pressing really low temps. You, know, you still get fresh press, but it's much more sappy, you know, retaining a lot more of the terpenes, just overall preserving it. It's just time and play, dude. And then also, you know, I've learned a lot from the community too, dude. And I love that people put themselves out there and like, you know, they share too. Because whether you think it's like beneficial or not, or it's like a good idea or not, I think you're dumb if you don't try it, you know, unless it's out of the ordinary, stupid, like, oh, I pressed a 500, you got to try this. You know, or, oh, I, or I made some fucking water hash and boiling water, like doing stupid shit, trying to make something new. I get it. People want to do the next new thing, but nah, dude. And I think just as a community sharing and like a lot of that helped evolve me. And, you know, I feel like it, it probably helped evolve a lot of people, dude. You know, I was inspired and I feel like a lot of people were inspired by the whole, there was like a, a lot of knowledge out there at one point in time, dude. So if you were really looking to, to get in on it, like if you were paying attention, there was a lot, dude. There was a lot to learn and a lot of people talking. Now it's a little less, but it's there. You talk to the right people, dude. Most of these guys, you're, you're just too scared. You're either too scared to ask or you feel bad asking or something. But a lot of these guys will share fucking a lot of knowledge with, with people, dude. I know you ask me. I'm not shy, dude. I'm going to put you on a play path. I'm going to help you. Like, But 
ask the right questions. If you're just like, how do you do this? Well, it's like, you're not interested enough. You know, if you're like, hey, so uh, I did this or what, what temperature, if you have like some type of educated question or something that's like, you know, I can tell you're into it or you explain something like, hey, I've been doing this. It's like, man, yeah, let's get you. Let's get you on the next fucking path because there's no competition, dude. It's all, it's all love. And like, we could all have something, dude. We can all make good shit because there's enough people around that want to support. You know, it's like, I, I don't just go buy one brand. I support the homies, you know, I, I, I'll get from more than just one person. I'm not like, oh, this is my favorite. This is all I smoke now. So speaking of trying things, based on what you've tried, is there such a thing as pressing at too low of a temperature? Yeah, definitely. Dude, you press too low. I mean, I guess it depends on your definition, dude. Like there's guys that'll sit there like fucking a hundred degrees and uh, like hours and let that shit press out. It can be done, but is it worth it to do it that way? Did your shit really come out that much better than the guy who pressed it at like 160 or 170? Like, you know, how long did you press it for? And like, how long did he press it for? And like, what variable dictates that yours is like better? Like, is yours like soup, just straight terps or what? I think it's a preference on people like that. People, if, if, you, if you're washed for yourself and you're making your own meds and shit, dude, fucking why not? But if you're trying to make stuff and like, you know, kind of make a living and, and like make the best shit out there too, like you have an understanding of preserving it and kind of doing it in like a way where it's efficient, you know, efficiency as well, you know, crushing it out, but like doing it in a timely manner and like, you know, figuring that out. So I think that's kind of something to think about, but like pressing too low. Yeah, you press too low. Fucking why not, dude? You press too low and fucking, I mean, who knows? Who knows what? What happens? I feel like if you press too low, like how do you know you're not causing nucleation to happen and like pressing out more terpene fraction and like THC is coming out? Yeah, but you could be locking some of that THC behind. So how do you know? Yeah, your terpenes might be higher in the test, you know, but it's not like you're not getting all of the juice out. So I don't know. I think it's a little bit of a preference for people and like what they get, and what they like, how they play with it. But like, I mean, look at like if you're pressing like isolate, dude, you start out at like fucking 80 degrees. I think temperature, pressing rosin, yeah, there's a too low. There, there's, a, there's a good temp where you can get it in a good time and a good temp. Too low is too slow. So is it about efficiency, but also viability in a sense? You know, if, if you were to press it at like 120 degrees and I pressed it at 160 degrees and then we finished it off and then brought it out to the table and then had someone like sit there and like blindfold test it and like guess what temperature was pressed or which one was better same material, I think it's going to be tough, dude. So, but I don't know without playing with that, like too much. Cause I don't press that, that I don't press that low. Fuck no. And, uh, it's just, I don't experiment with pressing that low all day. Cause it's, I got too much hash to play with, dude. I'm not going to be pressing at like a hundred degrees because or 120 degrees. Cause I'm not going to be able to get my work done. I'm also curious if you've seen when you do toy with it a little bit, if it affects the yields and that's where I was saying really the viability. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that. I've I've seen yields be affected pressing too low and uh too slow, I think. And I think that's probably just nucleation happening in the bag. I don't think it's a major loss. It's really not that much of a loss I've seen. But yeah, there's loss. There's definitely loss. Yeah, I mean, I feel like at least for me, definitely. But uh, I mean, there's variables there, dude. You press you got to figure out the timing for that temp as well, you know. So what for you at this point is like an average return on hash into rosin? On average, probably about 
7882 on rosin. You know, I mean, I could get more out, but I feel like, like I've always said, there's like a head and a tail to it, you know? And I feel like just that tail end, it's just better off leaving it for like second press or something. If you do second presses, you know, we'll, we'll do second presses and stuff sometimes. Yeah, I like leaving that out. So yeah, 78, like 82 across the board, but like it depends. Like if you're talking about like your, you know, cream of the crop, you're fucking. 149 to like 90 or even like with the 70 or anything like that you're talking like high 80s you know high 80s mid on a bad day but like yeah like 89 90 91 but you know and that's that's funny because like i kind of look at like six star hash like that too like if you were to press it if you call it six star and you press it i think you're gonna get like 90 91 back dude i mean if you figure out how to fold that bag up and like squeeze it to get every bit of juice out of like what's being retained in the bag, probably get more. But yeah, I feel like it's just mostly oil in there. We're losing some to the bag and like to that and shit. So yeah, you should be in the 90s, dude, with that quality. But like when you're talking overall, like, you know, you're adding like pens, like if you're, you you add the bulk of like the whole batch, you know, it's like, yeah, I would say average from like the low to the high, probably like 78, 82, some shit like that. So typically, what goes into your different rates of rosin? Typically, like I would say first, second spin, uh, 149 through 90, what we call tier one or like the head stash. I really like the 120 micron and the 90. I like to leave the 70 out. I feel like the 70 is fire on those first spins too, but it's just a difference in like the quality without it. I feel like that's going to just bump up like that tier two or the next quality down below it. You know, sometimes spin one through three, but like mostly first and second spin, like it depends on the strain too. Some strains that perform hard and just like dump resin, I feel like their degrading point, like where they start to degrade is bigger. They got a bigger range of where they pull and where they start to like lose quality. So like if you're talking about like something that's not a high yielder, like fucking RS11, whatever, or something like that, dude, you can't go as far like to like, in those bags because like they start to degrade from the outside and saying like, you know, like your one, 150 micron is going to go to shit quick. You know, your, your, your forties already going to your seventies going to shit and not, not going to shit or getting green. It depends on how you wash, but like, as in like taste wise, and like when you press it and like how you grade it, like for me, that's just my opinion. It's like, you know, that 40 never goes in with like that. <laughs> uh, 70 dude, that depends on the person, but I feel like that 70, it's fire. I used to always keep the 70 in with like the top grade, but over the years, dude, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, just washing the micron separate and stuff, like seeing the 70, I think it's just better without it. So where does that 70 go now? It goes in with like the three and four, 149. Uh, depends. The 150, one through two go in there too. So I'll, like I'll pull the 150, bin one and two, I'll set it aside. It's fuck. It's fire, dude. I'm not gonna lie. It's fire, but it's if it comes out like flawless, dude, it'll go into, you know, like tier one, like fire head stash, but just like hold it, keep it to the side and toss it back in. Like once we're rinsing the 149 through 70, like spin two to four, just toss it in there, you know, kind of bumps it up with that 71 through two, just kind of bumps up that quality coming out of that first spin. But it depends, dude. I think there's a lot of things that change though with like different strains. Like it's so hard to say with just that, I feel like uh, you still got to observe like when you're rinsing and like what that patty's looking like, you know, and kind of you still you still got to decide like, ah, 
yeah, let it do its thing. Or like, I'll pull that shit, dude. No, don't let it go in with this one. You know, definitely with passion. Yeah. And this goes back to the idea of like the maker being the one making these calls essentially over it being like an automated thing. I don't think can, can do that. Right. It, like right. have that experience to build upon and make decisions upon. Yeah, I agreed. So you talked a little bit earlier about the lab that I visited back almost four years ago. And, you know, you did tell me a lot of the stuff that you had done yourself. Like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, having to learn all these different, you know, trades, essentially like plumbing and and whatever else. How have you now taken what you learned from that and brought it into this new space and how you've developed that lab? Because lab development or how people think about creating a lab seems to be really important. Back to your point about having this proper flow of being able to be efficient and this one person being able to do a lot of work with the right tools. I learned a lot, dude, because, uh, you know, I was already kind of like a handy person, but like a lot of the things that I had to do in order to like, you know, maybe money wasn't there or it's like, I just wasn't going to take that fucking offer from somebody and like, fuck this. I'm going to do it myself. I have the time. You know, I learned a lot to where I was able to apply it to where I'm at now. And like, just kind of understanding the lab and like how you lay things out. It's, it's tough to get something perfect on the first shot, right? So it's like, ah, oh, shit, we should have had a drain over there. We should have plumbed the, or we moved the machines or whatever we decided to change. It's cool because I'll do the plumbing myself or I'll move the electrical myself. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll run the NC and I'll, I'll run the conduit and I'll set up the plugs. And, you know, it's like I can do it myself and I don't have to wait on somebody to come and do that. And like, you know, because like I just changed the lab up again. I just kind of changed up where we're washing. And it's like, but by configuring it, you know, I was able to remove like six feet of hosing, which we didn't need. So I, I feel like, I'm learning every day too, you know? It's just like when you do it every day, you figure out, okay, boom. If this was a little bit closer, if this was constantly filled, if this was recirculating, if this was doing that, like, you know, you figure out like where you want these things and like, you know, what's what's the best placement for it? Because I think doing it every day, you figure it out, you know? You you figure it out and you adjust. You figure it out and you adjust. So I've, I learned a lot with all those trades and everything that I did over there. You know, it's, it's cool because I can apply myself over here and like, depend on myself, get that shit going. So no, it's cool, dude. It's, uh, I, I, I'm glad that I was able to do all of that at that time and, and apply it over here. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, they definitely sound like useful skills to have in general, but you know, I've, we've heard on the podcast multiple times, people kind of joke about being glorified janitors, but in this case, there's like extra things that you need to do, like being electricians and plumbers and whatever else you need to do. So yeah, I think being self-reliant is good uh, in any sense. And even if you were having to outsource that work at some point, you know exactly what that other person should or shouldn't be doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and that's that's another thing too, is it's really given me, like when we built this lab out, you know, and like with the contractors and stuff, they can't really get things by on me. Like you, some, some people try to pull some things where it's like, oh, we're going to need this and that. And it's like, you know, I'll check it out. And it's like, no, or, you know, it's like, this is done, you know, so I'll go up and check. It's like, hey, the insulation didn't get placed down on here. This didn't get done here. Like, you know, I can call them out because I know what I'm looking for. And I understand like what it takes to build it out, set it up. You know, when someone tells me, no, we can't set up a drain here because uh, we can't drill through the joys. That's bullshit. You know, you can't bullshit me. I'm going to look into it. 
So it, it's good. I, I, I think it's really good because it helps save money because a lot of these guys, especially if you're in cannabis, they got a different price. You get a different price. You know, it's like trying to keep people fair and having that ability to like tell them like, yo, that's not fair. At the prior spot, you had a pretty interesting setup. You talked about it kind of vaguely at the beginning, but it was like multiple big canister. And like you said, you had some metal canisters that you had brought in to wash yourself. And earlier you mentioned now washing with a machine. So where are you with that in your lab nowadays? Oh, well, we also, you know, we got like the, we got like 50 gallon drums for hand washing as well. So we, we kind of do a little bit of everything. Like I still got plastic machines in there that we use for trim and stuff like that for like other, other things that don't go anything to like soil grown or my brand, but like, you know, at the same time where, where I work and stuff, we manufacture other things too. So it's cool. It's something that I can do. It's not something I'm like super like, Oh, look at this stuff. But you know, we can throw it into a process, get it running and, and utilize those, you know, like the icon 74 I have, I really like it. I think it's a, a, a great machine. The fact that we can dial down the agitation to almost zero and it's basically just moving the water while we're moving the bags and, and really causing majority of the agitation. And I like to work on that on like a work platform. Um, we got like the 50 gallon bubble barrels, you know, we'll line those up and do hand washing in there. So it depends like what we're doing too. Like when we're doing testers, we just, we'll just hand wash in the, in the barrels up, up top if we're doing a big run, you know, I like to consider it hand washing, but you know, it's, I call it machine assisted because it's like, it keeps my bags kind of floating around and moving instead of being stagnant and me trying to create the turning of the water. It's kind of slowly turning the water while I'm, I'm still making the water move, but I'm also making those bags move, you know? So I don't know. I like it, dude. And the fact that I can almost dial it down to like no agitation. It's, it's, I think it's up to like the quality dude that's coming out and it's to part. So I think it, it it's helpful. And what size are your batches currently? So we usually do 16,000 or no, it's uh, yeah, like 17,000 grams. In, in comparison to what you were able to do in a single barrel before? Single barrel, I mean, I think like 12K, so like six pounds. It's not much, not much of a difference. It's, I mean, we can still, it's pretty much like the same size, it's like a 74 gallon instead of a 50 gallon. So it's still small. You know, I, I was really skeptical on getting like the big ass ones and running them in there because I feel like you go too big, it's like, how can all the material rinse out in the first run when you're draining? How can you truly like tend to every bit of it? I feel like I'm maxed out, like as far as I feel comfortable, like really throwing in more material and like being able to maintain that quality that I'm happy with. And we, and we actually, we bring it down. So it'll be more like 14, 15,400 grams, I think is our batch. So that's where we usually keep it at. And then what's your timing on these? Has that changed at all with the machine assisted washing? No, nah, not for for the most part, not really. We're still around like five hours from start to finish. And this is on average how many washes? Well, it depends. It depends on the strain, but I like to run I like to run the material until we get about a half dollar. Like when, when the patty is that small, it tells me that there's nothing in there. Yeah, I like to get everything out of it and leave nothing behind. And then I can decide if it's of any value or if it's just food or scrap or trash, whatever the fuck it's going to be after I've got it out. One of the things that sticks with me from visiting your lab then 
that I still find interesting is that you run your 25U back or you're used to, and that kind of relates to that point you just brought up. Yeah, I do. So like uh, the way I collect is like, I'll collect the whole, like the whole patty, like 25 all the way up. I set that aside in like an ice bath. I'll let it settle and stuff. So I can see like any chlorophyll or anything, like not really chlorophyll necessarily, but anything that's sitting around in there and like, you know, I'll give it a blast with the hose, foam it up and pull it out, whatever. I feel like there's just doing it that way. I'm just, I can capture it and then work on it at a separate time. So it gives me like time to tend to the machines, get my bulk of what I want. You know, my spin one, two, three, if I'm getting it, but one and two, and then I'll pour those through and like, you know, I'll get it like that. But I feel like just some of the things I like to do, that's why I do it that way. I'll catch everything instead of like, some people will just drain right through their eight bags or their seven bags, whatever, unless they, if they pull bag, you know, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I do it a little bit different. And I'm sure there's people that do it like that as well, but that's just kind of how I like to do it. I like to catch everything in the 25, pull that patty out, get the water back in, get the machine going, and then I'll go pour it through when I'm ready. Yeah, it's interesting. That's why I wanted to bring it up. Like I said, it's something that's stuck with me for almost four years now. (laughs) Well, cool, man. You down for another smoke break? Yes, sir. All right, let's do it. I'd like to take another moment to give a shout out to everyone who makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 50 with Phil of Soil Growing Solventless and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Antonio of I-35 Labs, Macromelts in SoCal, Rezon Reserve and Solventless AF in Michigan, the Chile Relleno Burrito, the Homie Big C, the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, Nick the Intern, Kevin of Lifted Indina, the Real Cannabis Chris, Meltwalkie J, David of Rosin Evolution, Turp Wizard in Michigan, and Garland in DC. We appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. So we've talked about consistencies throughout the podcast. I feel like you're one of the guys who really pushed the limits on what could be done with rosin and how rosin started turning into these different consistencies. I'm curious what your thoughts are on whether the genetics and the resin are the most important thing when determining what consistency of rosin this is going to turn into, or is it more the maker's choice of what they want to make and making the genetics and the resin work towards that? I mean, the importance of the genetics as far as how it plays a role in the consistency of the final product or the rosin or what route the hash maker is going to make, I would say is not necessarily important or a big factor because all resin can be you know, manipulated to be whatever consistency that you're looking for, whether that be jam, fresh press, cold cure wet batters, but I feel like they all perform differently. So that's where it's up to the hash maker to really learn that resin, you know, stability wise or maybe terpene presence and how viscous it is coming off the press. I believe that, yeah, there are indicators that can kind of like guide you a path of like kind of where to put the oil in the best spot, you know, and, and, and regardless, I really feel like it's the, the community that dictates what's popular and like where that resin should be. But at the same time, I feel like if you're going to do something that's fresh press or like a culture wet batter and you wanted your best bet at like a fresh press, you know, you got to think about if you package up a bunch of fresh press and stuff like shelf life and stability, you know, even in the fridge, you know, nucleation does occur and things like that. You know, we cold cure at like 65 degrees. So 
you know, that being said, I feel like things that are more viscous right off the press that take lower temperatures or greasier resin, uh, those are like extremely great for like cold cures. You know, they pull up on the turps a lot better. They're, they tend to be much more wet batter. And I feel like, you know, you have those, that resin that may need like a little bit more heat or a little more time to pull off the press. It, it's definitely got a lot more stability to it and it takes longer in the cold cure to crash out and stuff you'll notice. So I feel like those ones are like really good for fresh press because they don't nucleate as fast. They hold that fresh press look the longest. So it's like shelf life and everything. But I feel like anything could be like a cold cured wet batter because it's already fully nucleated process, mashed and whipped down to like its, its final wet form. So you don't have to worry about it. The only thing you have to worry about that is over time, maybe like drying out or something. But for the most part, that's never a problem. Currently, what is your top consistency that you're putting out? I say cold cured wet batters. For, for right now, for me, I feel like they're the funnest to, to mess around with. You know, the mashing, the whipping, turning it to like the lightest color. I uh, love the, like the, the different textures, even in the wet batters from like a flan to like I don't know, just like a thicker wet batter to like a more viscous, you know, you tip the jar and you see the whole jar shift from left to right. Like I love that texture and stuff. Yeah, I would probably say cold cure wet batters. I really love messing with the jams and like experimenting with, you know, the different strains and how they react under the temperature and time and like how long it takes for things to crash out and understanding that, you know, I I feel like cold cure is king. Fresh press seems to be like, you know, I love fresh press twos. Don't get me wrong. They all kind of have their own little like attributes that you really like about them. I mean, cold cure is just the most shelf stable, appealing, nose popping, like ready to go stuff, dude. So yeah, I feel like it's king right now. You've mentioned the term cold cure and wet batter together a few times. Are you basically kind of equating those to be the same thing at this point? I mean, wet batter, I guess would just Really, uh, in general, is just like, you know, wet batter, regardless of what route you took to get it to be wet. But a cold cured, you know, I guess really specifies how you got there. You know, dark, cold rooms. Uh, A lot of times, you know, it's people do room temp or whatever, whatever the different variables they all do. But for the most part, we kind of get to the same point. You know, you'll get certain strains, you'll get fat pools of terps on the top and you'll whip and mash it in. And then, you know, it seems to, to get like a much more stable wet batter that doesn't like renucleate, you know, recrystallize and become like a dry batter. So I think, yeah, cold cure, cold cure refers to just slow, long, cold process. So tell us a little bit about how you get the cold cure to being a cold cure. I think you mentioned just a little bit ago about 65 degrees. Is that typically what you're keeping it at? Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, I would say it's like, and on and off from 60 to, well, 55 to 65, which is probably why it takes so long for some of this stuff. But it's, it's really how I just, I keep my room. So during the day we work at 65 or it climbs up to 65. When we get in, it's about 55 degrees. So I would say probably like 14 hours of it sitting at 55. And then, you know, the rest of the day is at 65. So it's got a little fluctuation in temp. And, you know, sometimes it'll reach 70 degrees, I'll realize, and I'll have, I'll kick the AC back on or something like that. So it does a little bit of changing up in the room and stuff. Yeah. I just think those cold temps, you know, below like 65, to me, 65 is a good temp. It works for me, you know, and I feel like you can try other things and that variable might not be the most important if you're at 70 degrees or if you're at 60 degrees or what. It may prolong the period. I feel like if you start going higher in temp, 
you might speed it up, but you you might also speed up oxidation and change up the color a little bit. So there's just a bunch of variables there. I think 65 is a sweet spot for me. On the kind of extremities, what are some of the strains that you've seen essentially cold cure the fastest? And then on the other spectrum, what are some of the strains that you've seen that take a while in this 55 to 65 environment? Uh, well, like for instance, this Dulce de Uva that we've been working with, super stable. It's a good yielder and everything. So it performs well across the board, but super stable resin. So, you know, in at the room at 65, you know, it's shattery. I just noticed putting those into the jars and keeping it at that temperature. And, and because it's such a stable resin, it just, it kind of prolongs the process from like a normal five, seven day cure to like looking at like closer to two weeks and stuff, sometimes more. I think a lot of it is definitely strain and then temperature. But, you know, the way we allow it to fluctuate in the room kind of changes it up a bit. So it's not quite consistent because I don't keep the temperature consistent, but I keep it in a, a consistent range. And then, you know, like, for instance, like the, the RS-11 we did, that stuff crashed out really quick. That was like four days, five days before it pulled up and we were able to mash it up and it stayed super wet. So that one was like it. But that one off the press, too. Came off quick as a, a really greasy resin. And then the the rosin was also like, you know, sappy, definitely greasy, like viscous rosin rather than being stable, which I love that. Just generalizing, in this case, it sounds like the Dulce de Uva might be a good candidate for like a fresh press if you wanted to keep it that way. And then the RS-11 is more like wet batter-ish. Yeah, and you know, that's kind of what we were talking about. It's like, you know, stable strains, I feel like would work great for fresh presses or probably best for fresh presses. And like, you know, your, your more greasy, viscous, soupy rosin, like those are, those make the best wet batters. Cause like, you know, we're looking at the Dulce de Uva and I made a bunch of snakes for like some hash holes and I left two of them out and didn't notice, but they've been sitting there for like seven days, just out oxidizing and they're still fresh pressed. They're not even like nucleated butter yet. They're still snap. So that what I'm talking about, like sitting out. Cause you think about like people get oil, they're dabbing up. Not everyone's like with like putting it back in the fridge or the freezer and like storage wise, you know, and then some people forget their shit on the counter or they'll forget the lid off and things like that. Well, as a fresh press, I feel like that's going to be your best bet, you know, and especially like looking into this whole new industry, like the rec market, dude, the way things work and like logistics and then all these dispensaries and shit, dude, they don't know how to store shit. They don't know how to care for it. So it's like really up to us to tell them how to store it, make sure that we only work with people that are following those guidelines. But even then, by the time it gets to a consumer and like they get it, you could have some fresh press out there that's fully nucleated, too late to start whipping and mashing. And it's not going to be wet because you didn't catch it at the right time. You know, I, I think those strains are like the best bets in that perspective. Going back to the pressing, do you press these strains any differently if trying to achieve different consistencies? No, not necessarily. It's pretty consistent. I feel like once you get the rosin, you can pretty much do what you want with it. It's just really up to a decision on what you want. Like even the Dulce, I turned it to a wet batter. First round, it's a wet batter. So it's just like looking at it, you know, like something that's greasy and then something that's like stable turned into a wet batter. It's a little bit more of like, like when you tip the jar, it doesn't quite tip to the side, like the RS-11 or the Scotty's Cake or uh, the Florida Kush we do. So you know, some things like the, even the wet batters will be a little bit different, but still nice and wet and stable, not drying out. Some of those important things are, are 
they're good. They're still, they're still good for both aspects. And like, you know, even like the, the wetter stuff, dude, like turning that into a fresh press and leaving it as fresh press. I mean, they're still fire, dude. A lot of times those will like sugar up instead of like turning into like a dry crumble or some shit, you can mash them up and they make beautiful wet batters. Even like the smokers doing it themselves. So you brought up the jams. Has your tech in jams kind of changed over time or has that stayed pretty relatively the same as well? Yeah, the jams, dude, I love the jams. But for the most part, I would say since like day one of watching like who Diet Funk drop the tech and like everybody going crazy about it. And like, I remember standing over my fucking toaster oven and, and fucking nuking some shit. Dude, it's definitely evolved a lot. And I feel like for everybody, but you know, anybody who's reaching for that information and really trying and, and the guys out there that are experimenting and, and doing the R&D and taking losses and doing it right and like, you know, trying to understand. But uh, yeah, it's definitely evolved. A lot of changes to like time, temperature, understanding how long things take. So I'm not just hunching over a fucking toaster oven for 45 minutes. And it's just like learning critical times when to pull, learning the way certain strains react, you know, like some stuff will take longer to get to that point. Some stuff goes quick. So you can't just assume everything is going to be the same. And then like learning patience with it too, you know, uh, some stuff, And and a a lot of it is like all these variables and these critical points, you know, like when you pull and like dialing in your process. So knowing when to pull at that certain time, watching that head on the foam or or like just the way it's reacting inside the jar and then putting it to the heat mat and understanding like, okay, you pulled it too soon because it crashed out way too fast or shit, you might have taken it a little bit too long because it's not crashing out and it's already seven days. But then next thing you know, that jar starts crashing out. So like, it's just so many variables to it. And I feel like uh, a lot of patience and a lot of kind of trial and error and understanding it. Because once you dial it in, it's, it's pretty dialed in, you know, and, and you, you know what to look for and how to react to certain things. What is it that you like about the James? You mentioned earlier, like they have a, a strong smell. Do you, do you feel like it changes like the potency or how strong they are at any point? I mean, yeah, you know what? I do feel like the high changes up. I don't know about stronger. Definitely a, a totally different high. The terpene profile changes up. I feel like it becomes more like matured, cured-ish, like not old age type of thing, but like losing like that live plant taste like that you get with the fresh frozen, fresh press, you know, even more like similar to a wet batter, but still different from a wet batter. I don't know. It's like, it's hard to describe, but yeah, I feel like they're more, let's say, just modified i guess with the 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 temperatures and all the way it's reacting they're they're, they've changed up but they're still that strain but it's just like another experience with that terpene profile i feel like and i feel like the high does change up i'm not sure if it it gets higher in thc i think with some of the lab testing we've seen it did go up in thc but yeah no i really i really enjoy the jams i really uh and i feel like a lot of it is just like making it and then you know like the crystallization of it and like the texture and I just love the consistency of it. So, yeah. Do you have a preferred smoke out of all the consistencies? Huh, preferred smoke out of all the consistencies, I would say right now is probably the cold cure. You know, I really enjoy the cold cures. But no, nah, dude, honestly, it's hard to say there's a favorite because it's constantly changing up for me. Like, you know, I love cold cures, but at the same time, I really love the experience of the jams and like the, the sugar just the smoke and like the whole experience of it. I don't know. For me, it's exciting. You know, it's not just about the strain or the turp profile, you know, the consistency and things like those are exciting too. I still get 
you know, all of that excitement from like, you know, these different ways we can make something, you know, and just cause it looks different and it's the same strain, it's, it still gets me, you know? So I feel like it changes up. I'll have a phase of wet batters and then I'll have a phase of jams. Not so much fresh press. I love fresh press. Don't get me wrong, but uh, I'm more of like, I like to change it up. I like them as wet batters and jams a little more. And maybe that's because of the ease of like uh, using it, like dabbing and stuff, like scooping up the batters and stuff. They're not going to like run in my pocket and they're not going to like nucleate while I'm on my way to this session. I'm cracking it open to show somebody and it's all, you know, clotted up. You know, and like the jams per se, you have those in your pocket or something, the jar tip sideways or something. Now you got it all over the lid. But like those wet batters are like perfect for like appeal, nose, the nose is popping hard on them. Taste is great. Color is like phenomenal. So I think across the board, yeah, dude, it's maybe cold cure for me. I mean, it's cool to have options. So yeah, at this point, you know, it's almost like we're, we're spoiled. Yeah, yeah, so. exactly. It's hard to choose. <laughs> On this note, though, have you moved over into making carts? We've been in R&D phase with pen filling and like dialing in our process with you know, decarbing the oil or, or kind of, you know, melting it down per se into a stable form. And like a lot of it's the hardware, the process of making it, having the stuff ready to fill pens is there. We have it. We have kind of our process a little bit different than just throwing the rosin into an oven and letting it melt down to a stable point where it's not going to crash out, you know, so there's still always decarboxylation going on in our process, but we're trying to minimize it and, you know, kind of playing with a little bit of like, you know, cause we've, we really dug into like, you know, separating THCA from the terpene fraction, cleaning up the terpene fraction. So I feel like there's a lot that can be played with there and like, you know, messing with those terpenes that are coming off of that, that secondary uh, uh, mechanical extraction or, and a combination of maybe like, pour offs from jams and and melting down rosin to get like the best terpene profile and viscosity that we're trying to achieve for those for the the hardware but i feel like the biggest factor dude is the hardware you know there's plenty of hardware that does well out there but how trustworthy is it there's been some companies where they claim to be all ceramic stainless steel posts and all this shit but then you rip them open and that it's false, dude. Bullshit. Just fucking bullshit. Trying to sell a lie. It's crazy. But they work good. Don't get me wrong. But it's like, you know, trying to have that like health conscious mind like sense and trying to keep everything clean. Like it's kind of like the idea, you know, and like to steer away from that to make it more portable and like convenient. It's just like contradicting in a way. So I do love the carts. We are ready to start filling them. I feel like the, the biggest thing is, you know, finding the time to really play with all this different hardware and figure out what we like best before we start putting it out there. Cool. Yeah, I think that's fair. On another note, recently, Solventless Mind or Tom made a post about how he feels it's nice when people stick to their craft, for example, cultivation, hash making as almost like individual things. And he as a hash maker is really just working on showcasing the work that the cultivator has done. Now as a processor yourself, in a relationship now with partners that do have cultivation, how do you feel about each craftsman almost like sticking to a particular thing? I mean, I do feel like Tom is right in a sense. Like, you know, the more you can focus on your craft, the better you can become at it. When you're trying to be a master of all, 
you're a master of none. You're good at a bunch of things. But the guy who's just focusing and doing that one thing over and over and over, he's putting more hours into that, you know? So I feel like focal point is important when what we do. So like people that cultivate, dude, they got to where they were and where they are because they focused on it. They put a lot of time and energy into that. And if they didn't do other things and that's all that they put their time and energy, how could we say that? they're not going to get there faster than the person who's spreading their time out into four different things. Uh, you know, that being said, yeah, I, I, I do feel like it is important to synchronize with your team, you know, so whatever you're doing as a whole, you got cultivation, you got manufacturing, you know, so we got to communicate in a sense that it's like, you know, I got, I leave the cultivation up to them. It's up to them to perform. And on my side, it's up to me to perform. But at the same time, we need to communicate in a sense, like these are the strains we want to run. You know, we're noticing this in the room or what, whatever it is that we need to communicate across the board, you know, it'll be their job to adjust. But I feel like, yeah, I feel like focusing on our craft is how we can be best at our craft. And, and for me, I, that's kind of how I've been. Like I used to cultivate big into, and that's how I started. That's where the passion came from. And, you know, like got big into hash. And then when I was able to start producing my own like hash oil and shit, and then, you know, going into to water hash was like a game changer. So. Yeah, dude. I, I feel like if I didn't focus over the years, I would be really good. Don't get me wrong, because there's a bunch of badasses out there where it's like they grow and then there's there's time for them to process their crop because they're waiting for their next crop. And it's like, you know, small batch fire, they have the time to be able to do that because they don't have the material to come in where they're focused strictly on processing or strictly on cultivation. So they're using their time wisely towards everything. But you know, I feel like for me, I always have stuff to process and manufacture and things to learn and experiment and ideas that I'm like, oh, I want to go try this out. I want to see how this is going to react if I do this. And like, oh, dude, I think this will happen. So I go and try it. So I feel like I need that time to be able to get out there and work on those different things and like the trials and tribulations and the different messing up on shit and like observing it and figuring out why it did that and learning how to remediate and learning how to like keep the ball moving forward and perfect the craft as best as you can. Cause you know, we never know how good we can get. Do you feel like this idea of like working in a particular craft in this case, for example, hash making would do well when going into like a recreational market where typically I'm assuming scaling up is always part of the ambition of it. Oh, 100%. I feel like if you don't have that communication between the two, yeah, in like whatever, whatever scaling up or rec market or whatever market business you're trying to make, then it's just going to be a bunch of hit and miss. You got cultivation growing whatever they want, and we're just going to take it and run it. When we already have the knowledge and understanding of hash producers, you know, we're out there listening and watching and seeing what's going on and picking our best options. And, you know, us communicating with cultivation gives us the ability to move a little bit faster than just like leaving it up to them. You know, let's say we didn't know what strains to run and they didn't know what strains to run. So they're just growing stuff. How long can that last? If we continuously are getting things that aren't yielding high, aren't performing as far as quality, you know, all those aspects. So then it's just a constant guessing game. It's set up for failure. So I think it's important for cultivation and manufacturing to communicate if that's an avenue that they're going to go into in a market that they're going to get into because uh, it's super important to know what strains to, to start running, what, you know, what does well, what's the hottest terps, is it worth keeping because it yields low, but the terpenes are crazy. You know, there's a lot of factors there and it's like, 
you know, at the same time, we have to understand in the cultivation, it's like, yo, did that do well for you guys? Because it's like, it's crushing it in here. But if it doesn't perform for you over there, can it exist? And can we keep it as something like that? You know what I mean? And in that regard, at this point, what does the cultivation department, and I guess you guys see as a percentage that's doable at this level? Man, I guess that's, I think it's like, you got to weigh the benefits of it. Like if the terps are that loud and everyone agrees on that, you test the waters, get it to the right people, get that feedback on it. And if it's the one, then I feel like you can get away with, you know, 3%, you know, 3% on water hash, even lower on rosin. But it just, I think it depends on what number you're able to get, you know, the crowd you have, regardless of you being able to make it at the end of the day, it's like, can you sell it? Right. So if, if it's a crazy terp, then I think it's worth, worth keeping, you know, because at the same time, even if it's something that you're not going to make the most on it, you got it. And, and you know, it's, 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 the, it's the loss leader, it's the gas, it's what brings them in, it's what brings people in, it's the hype. And then you have everything else too. No one's going to pass up on that. So you kind of got a little bit of everything. And then I would say 3% is so getting close to the bottom. And so just to clarify, because you brought up the water hash, the 3% is all of the water hash combined. Yeah, that would be like your usable water hash. No, like 220 or 180. No 25. I'm not even counting 25 micron. I hate to say it, but I don't collect it. I know I know people are going to be like, dude, you could use it for so much stuff. I know I can, dude. I, I will. I will one day. I'll start collecting it. <laughs> well, Phil, I appreciate you hanging out with me so long. I'll start winding this down, shooting some questions all over the place. Do you feel like Rosin has anywhere to go from here? Does rosin have anywhere to go from here? Heck yeah, it does. I mean, look at the amount it's evolved in the short amount of time, dude. It's like what, 2015 from like flower rosin and like decent hash rosin to four plus different consistencies, crazy amount of terpene profiles, putting rosin into pens. Like it's just crazy. Like the amount of things we can do now with it and what we were able to do with it. And it's just like, it's one of those things where you're like, dude, how could we do any more? How could, how could it get even better? Like we're at the plateau, but it's like, nah, nah. Cause you know what? Throughout history, it keeps evolving and it keeps getting better, dude. And it's like, I don't know when or how or what, but I think it's coming, dude. And we'll, we'll see some shit. We'll see some shit soon. And it's going to be like this. It could be like the simplest thing. We're like, ah, what? Can't believe I never did that. And there's going to be some cool shit. And who knows, maybe it's not even rosin, dude. Maybe it's just like, even just off like the water hash or some shit. But yeah, I think rosin will do it too. I think, I think rosin will evolve, whether that's in like another form of uh, a consistency or like learning to clean it up even more, refine it even more. But I think so. I think we'll see some cool stuff in the future. Cool, yeah. It'll be exciting to see. I haven't busted this one out in a while, but if you had to define what hashish is for you, what is it? Hashish for me is like, it's, it's the resin glands, whether it's dried or wet, it's the actual whole resin glands. And like, you know, it's those trichomes being separated off the plant, like as clean as it can be, you know, cleaning it up and refining it, removing as much particulate, whether that be like through a bunch of screens and sifting or, you know, through water sieving with a bunch of screens. And I think to me, it's that dried, refined hash that still, you know, encapsulated in that wax membrane. That is hashish to me. What are some of the things that you like to do outside of hash for self-enjoyment? For me, self-enjoyment and like 
free time and stuff. I like to do music. I really like to uh, play around with like the ukulele or my guitar. I get stuck on the piano or the keyboard, you know, making beats or whatever, just learning songs. But for me, that's like, that's like my form of meditation and kind of escaping from everything else. And it's, it's relaxing. It's like, I don't know. I lose myself in this like vibe with the music and stuff. So like I can get lost in it and it really like relieves stress and everything. So for me, music is a, a big one. Yeah, I used to skate. Yeah, I used to be a big skater. So I don't really do it much anymore, but I'm more on like, you know, electric stuff. I really like going riding. So you know, I'll go on cruises and stuff, take the board out, you know, go hit the wash and just get around town and shit like that, you know? Do you think that's like an important part to counter even work that you love? Yeah, I think so, dude. I think it's a part of who I am and like who I try to be and who I try to like and what I try to share with the world. And like, I think it reflects on everything I do, dude. Maybe I wouldn't be making hash if I didn't live this type of lifestyle because it's like, you know, this lifestyle I feel like goes hand in hand. Like all the people I grew up with, dude, we were stoners, you know, young kids smoking. But like, I feel like part of my passion became came from the smoking and everything, you know, and then like getting a seed and then planting it in the ground and watching the plant grow and stuff like that. So I feel like it is. I feel like it's a reflection of like who I am and like the path that it's put me on. Yeah, I think it plays a role. Throughout our conversation, you've mentioned the word nucleation in regards to whether the resin gets trapped in the bags while pressing. What does that mean to you? I mean, nucleation is just another word of crystallization. So it's like it's like the start of crystallization in the resin. So, you know, like when you start seeing it cloud up, it's nucleating. And then when it's fully turned to like a crumble or butter, it's it's fully crystallized at that point. So I feel like it's a big part of what we do, you know, whether we're we're making wet batters or whether we're pressing something out, you know, trying to figure out what temperature and time to press that. I feel like you got to be careful with that too. You know, you resin sitting on heat and time, you know, can cause nucleation. So maybe you're getting THC trapped in the bag. I know back in the day we used to have that problem. I remember making a bunch of like flour rosin and then throwing it into a bag to clean it up, there'd be a bunch of white powder left behind. You know, that was the THC because throughout that process of pressing, nucleation was happening and now I'd be, I'd be losing THC in my, my rosin. But it's, it's crazy because that kind of set off the whole path of like, yo, what is this? Can't remember exactly. I think it was like Gage Green Group or somebody like did a test on it. They'd lab test it and they're like, dude, this is THC. And it was just went from there. You know, like, okay, boom, figuring out how to get that, melting it down, experimenting it with it and stuff. I don't know exactly what to say about it. Nucleation to me is just crystallization. It's, it's, a, it's a key thing in what we do. You know, we, we, we don't want our fresh press nucleating before it gets to people. We want, it, we want nucleation when we're trying to make wet batters, you know, where we're purposely doing things to set it off. And yeah, I mean, to me, that's kind of what nucleation is. It's like, it's like the general term for... Uh, crystallization in a way, microcrystallization and buttering. And also I feel like it has, it's like you just said it right now, but it's like when it kicks off the rest of it, it's almost like this chain reaction that will happen if part of it starts doing that and then the rest of it kind of starts doing it. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's like the seeding of the crystal. I've seen your branding change throughout the years. How important do you feel it is to kind of upkeep artwork jars, side wraps, whatever it is that you're doing for your marketing in your brand? I mean, I think it's important in a way, dude. I feel like it's a type of identity, right? So we all make rosin. 
there's so many people that, that make cash and rosin. So like, you know, your sticker, your brand is kind of a representation of you and like maybe, maybe where you come from and like uh, what you like, you know? So I feel like, and then the packaging and everything too, you know, got to keep it cool. Or, you know, back in the day when we used to put oil and plastic jars with lids, like, you know, and then put them in glass jars with lips and like, it's trial and error. And like, as a community kind of like figuring out what's the best phase, you know, throwing it in parchment inside of tins, sealing them, like trying to figure out cool ways that are kind of appealing to to crack something open from someone, you know? So it's like, for me, you know, you kind of want to, it's, it, it's an impression on somebody too. So, you know, it's like when you get something that's, it's got a seal, that's cool. You know, it's not getting fucked with, you know, and then changing up the logo. I think it's fun. It's fun for people too. You know, it keeps you from being stagnant, trying to kind of change with the days and like, but I think it's important to keep it in the direction of like what you are and what you believe in, in your brand. So, you know, for me, I come from like, you know, music and skateboarding, like just kind of that lifestyle, dude, like heavy skateboarding. So I feel like my brand, a lot of my uh, influence comes from like skate brands and stuff. So that's kind of how I put that together and like came up with the idea and then it all fell together. So it really does represent a lot of me and my life and, and, you know, where I come from and stuff. But I feel like, I feel like it's important. We got to keep, keep having fun with the, the labeling and the packaging and, you know, keeping it on the, the forefront of like, what is the, the popular packaging and why? You know, it's like, okay, well, it's important that we don't have, you know, we have flat sides, uh, side walls and we have dark jars to, to stop phytooxidation and like to, to reduce oxidation and preserve the concentrate and like seals are cool, you know? So I like the way things are going and it's just kind of paying attention to the, the cycle of like the way packaging changes it up. And if it's like something where I'm like, yeah, dude, that's, that's smart and that's how it should be then fuck yeah, we're going to move to that. So I think it's important. Cool. If you had to choose the three people who have been the most influential hash makers to you, who would they be? Influential, I feel like, I mean, there's a lot of influence now, but I feel the most, like what really kicked me off in my path and where I am now, I'd say Nick Tatum, Selected Nick of Tea, Essential Extracts. We was a big one for me. Those That was my first set of bags. You know, I was like, really searching for people and like forums and everything. Like, who do I watch? I would say Matt Rise as well. Uh, Matt Rise and Nick T were just like kind of, you know, those guys were like popping at a point. BC Bubble Man, definitely. You know, he was like somebody who was like, anytime I was reading stuff, he would be re- referred to. So I started looking into him and stuff. Shit, dude, even like, like Frenchie Cannoli, you know, I was super stoked and interested in like his process and all of that. And like, I was still in like the learning phase of water hash. So, you know, like understanding hashish and like the way he made the the old school temple balls and cannolis was like super intriguing. So I was on that path, like under, trying to understand those. So those guys were super inspiring and influential to me. So uh, I would have to say probably those three, dude, probably those three. And I know there's more because there's a lot of influence at that time, but just off the top of my head. Cool. I appreciate you sharing that. Final question. If you could hear from somebody on the podcast who hasn't been on, who would it be? I would say probably the wizard, Wizard Rosin Bo. He's a badass hash maker. He's a super cool dude. Just fun to kick it with. Knows his shit. He's super passionate about it too. Like, super smart guy, dude, when it comes to like experimenting and really digging into like 
playing with the resin and watching how it how it reacts and like what it does like Bo knows what's up so I would say wizard rosin man I think he's he's uh someone people people have been watching you know they've been seeing the waves he's making and he does a great job dude so I think he's worthwhile I think he would be worth everyone's time give, get, giving him a chance on there and like hearing his story cool man I appreciate that yeah we'll we'll try to make it happen sometime dope Again, man, thank you so much for taking the time. It really was a pleasure talking to you and connecting with you again. You can follow Phil on Instagram at soilgrownsolventless underscore. Is there anything else that you want to say before we sign off? Shit. I mean, nah, not really. Thank you for having me on here. I really appreciate you letting me talk with everybody and sharing the story to the community because, man... I love the community and I appreciate all the support that everybody's given me over the years. It's nothing but love. And man, you guys have been encouraging and I'm sorry that I haven't been out there as much lately. I mean, shit has been this pretty discouraging in the market and like media and all that, but man, I love you guys and I really appreciate it. I really appreciate everyone's support. Yeah, man. And I also just want to honestly thank you. I talked to you about this yesterday on a personal level. It's funny how we've been talking about inspiring and stuff and, when we met four years ago, you were really encouraging to like keep this project going and even like try to expand it and stuff. And I really took that to heart. And so, yeah, I just want to appreciate your encouragement as well. Yeah, it's all up, brother. And I'm glad to see you. Uh, you stuck with it. It's turned into something really cool, dude. And it's, uh, it's, it's amazing, dude. And, uh, you know, and that, that same energy, dude, honestly, it's just the way people pushed me and the way they lifted me up. And I never expected it. I didn't even know them. And just, People talking in the way it did. And I, and I feel like that energy, we all need to share that, dude, because look what we do. We just push each other to do great things. And there's nothing that could ever come from that that's bad. Exactly. Yeah, it's super cool. Super cool how things turn out. But yeah, man, wishing you all the best with everything moving forward. For everyone who kept up with us this long, we appreciate you and we'll catch you next time. Much love. Thank you for listening to The Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.